morning. Um, welcome to spring break week. I never really know what to expect at the start of uh, spring break, but it's good to see you all. Glad uh, we had a showing. So uh, thank you for coming. And we're uh, excited to jump back into Mark chapter 4 this morning. Uh, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, why don't you turn with me there uh, to Mark chapter 4. At some point, we'll get these house lights on so you can actually uh, see where you're going. Oh, there they are. You ask and you shall receive. So there's your lights. Um, and so the black Bible's around you. Um, if you go to page 890, that's where we'll be today, Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're excited about the time that we have to, uh, to continue looking at these parables. And we come across um, one of the more familiar ones, which for me, uh, the more familiar the passage is, the more intimidating it is to preach on it. Uh, I don't know why. It's just because I'm, I'm, I'm running against a long history of lots of focus and lots of attention. Um, and so many of you have been studying studying this passage decades longer than I have. Um, and I don't mean that as an offense, um, just age is a reality. You're old if you're old. So like, it's just there. So be offended if you want to be. Um, but you know, it's, it's just part of it. But listen, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 looking at verses um, 30 through 34. I'm excited about this time um, to share with you. And so let's pray about it and then we'll jump into it. Our God, thank you so much for this time that we have to worship, uh, to sing, um, to just use your word, uh, to seek it, to let your Holy Spirit just cultivate in us something that is good and beautiful and right, uh, something that increases our faith and our trust in you. And we ask that as we look at this parable of the mustard seed, that you would give us great confidence to know that even our unseen, little, maybe even seemingly insignificant places of obedience, that God, that you are actually using those things for great kingdom impact. And I pray that you would increase our trust, increase our belief in our time together today. And we love your word, we're grateful for it, and we love your son. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray, amen. Well, uh, I think you can tell a lot uh, about people based on the movies that they like, and so I understand that what I'm about to tell you might be, it might alter your perspective of me, I don't know. Uh, But hands down, my favorite movie over the last six months has been Matilda the Musical. Is that surprising to you? Because it kind of is to me. Um, And I've not been quiet about it. I've told everybody about this movie because I think it's awesome. Um, And you might be thinking, well, Adam, that makes sense. I mean, you have little kids in the house, like... It makes sense that your tastes would, you know, adjust to your family. And I, I appreciate your grace, but I also took my wife to see Tangled three times in theaters before we had kids. Um, so I think I'm just a child, and I have to balance it out with John Wick every once in a while. But in Matilda, right, this tiny little girl, if you know the story, she feels trapped in her situation, uh, mainly due to her parents, who are extremely neglectful. Uh, they despise her, and so she starts to act out. Um, which, by the way, that's what's going to happen if you despise your kids. They're going to act out. And so she decides to kind of revolt in a way, uh, to kind of take her destiny into her own hands, to write her own story. And so she builds up this confidence through song, because it's a musical, right? Uh, Because she doesn't want to shy away just because she has uh, littleness, because she's a little person. Even if you're little, you can do a lot. You mustn't let a little thing like little stop you, she sings. And it really pulls on a bigger truth that we all know and we all feel and we all have, um, even in our lives, examples of, and it's just the truth that, that even very big, awesome things have little beginnings, humble beginnings. Um, and we see this all the time 
in the scriptures, in, in just the Lord's way of doing things, he seems to actually prefer humble circumstances because out of those humble circumstances, he does awesome, awesome things. There's a lot of people, I think, who consider littleness and humbleness, you know, humble circumstances. These are things to be overcome. These are things to be victorious over on their way to bigger and greater things. But listen, in God's way and in God's perspective, please listen, because this is like the main point of everything today. Your humble circumstances are not a hindrance to greatness. They're actually God's preferred method for it. Your humble circumstances are not a hindrance to greatness. They are God's uh, uh, method for it. And so that's going to bring us into our understanding of the mustard seed here that we're going to read about in Mark chapter 4. So I'm going to invite Greg up um, um, to read our passage for us today, Mark chapter 4, looking at verses 30 uh, through 34. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, and if you are able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning, Greg. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 34. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that, when sown upon the soil, is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. He was speaking the word to them with many parables like these, as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. Awesome. Thank you. You can have a seat. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this parable of the mustard seed. However, we did want to include 33 and 34, verses 33 and 34, because parables, in a way... Uh, are a good example of the principle of the mustard seed. Um, how God does really big things out of, out of pretty humble beginnings and humble things, right? And parables have a humility to them. They have a humble nature to them. And so if you want to read with me again, verses 33 and 34, it says that he, Jesus, was speaking the word to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. And he did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. Now, parables, if you know, um, and we've been talking about them quite a bit uh, lately, parables are just, they're they're humble in nature because when you're talking to 5,000 people like Jesus often was, speaking to to large crowds, then you have to adjust your terminology and your imagery to to be the common denominator among all the people listening in, to give them the best chance to grasp what you're trying to say. And so Jesus was the master at taking really big concepts, for example, the kingdom of God, and putting it into language that people would have the best chance of understanding. And so in that way, there's really a simplicity uh, to the parables. But even in their simplicity, there was deeper understanding to be had, which is why in verse 34 we read about... um, um, the, the, the apostles, the, the followers, the disciples of Jesus, who, who they wanted further explanation, right? We know that you're speaking all this and it's kind of understandable, but we want deeper explanation as to what you are saying. And so even in the simplicity of the parables, 
right? There's deeper explanation to be had. And by the way, these people who chased this deeper explanation, they were kind of the mustard seeds of the church. These were the people, the small number of people that Jesus built his entire church on, which is pretty amazing, right? By the way, if you read this parable and you read about the mustard seed and, the, you know, it's the smallest, but you know in your head that botanically it's not actually the smallest seed. Like, if you love to just get hung up on just like, well, it wasn't a tree, it was a shrub. And, like, if you want to get hung up on all these details and, like, pretend like you're smarter than Jesus, then, I mean, have at it, but it's a waste of time, man. Like, just don't, don't worry about that, right? He's obviously speaking proverbially here right? He's using hyperbole, and, and it's a parable, right? He's not trying to be botanically accurate. He's trying to speak in a way that is most relevant to his audience, okay? So don't get hung up on that in your group discussion times. Don't waste too much time there. Talk about the actual uh, meaning of the parable, all right? And speaking of the meaning of the parable, I think probably one of the most immediate understandings of the parable is about the early church. If you think about the early church and the mustard seed quantity of people that Jesus used to build the mountain of the church that he built, right? Yes, Jesus spoke to thousands of people during his earthly ministry, but if you fast forward past his death, past his resurrection, past his ascension, what you have in the upper room of people praying, ready to receive the Holy Spirit, is 120 people, including the 12 disciples. Right? 120 people. And upon the teaching and influence of 120 people, God built the church that we know today, this unstoppable, giant, monumental, world-changing force that we still get to be a part of. That's awesome. You think about Jesus' life himself, right? Jesus, who is king and supreme over all creation, yet God chose the route of humility for him to come and do what he did. God chose to send him not to be served, but to serve, the Bible says. And Jesus's life is a wonderful example of this mustard seed, humble beginnings, humility that God likes to use to do remarkable things. Jesus, born in a manger, right? He came to a, lone, a lowly teen and her husband-to-be. And, you know, the conception and all the stuff around his birth was kind of mysterious, and it brought family shame and confusion as people didn't understand what was happening. If you read about the, the Christmas account, right, they're traveling constantly. He had a death threat already on his head as a baby from the mad king Herod. He was born in a stable. He slept in a feeding trough. He lived a, he lived a humble life. He lived a humble life. And then even when he started his earthly ministry when he was 30 years old, he lived without. He just lived without. He lived without a home, without a bed, without a wife and kids, without traveling and seeing the world, without so much of what the world would say makes life worth living. Along the way, by the way, his companions, his closest people, you read about it through the Gospels, they were often rash, misunderstanding, thick-headed, conceited, doubtful, even corrupt, as one of them played a pivotal part in his betrayal and execution, where Jesus was brutalized and murdered in the lowliest of ways, naked, hanging on a cross like meat in a butcher shop. And yet, we are here today, and we know for sure that Jesus is alive and well at the right hand of the Father with full life in his lungs. 
And he has used that humble circumstance and all of those, all of the littleness of his story that some might look at and think, well, that's small, that's little, that's humble, that's seemingly insignificant. And yet he is alive and well and he has invited us into that life. It's the strongest movement and force that has occurred since creation itself. It will last forever. There will, not, there will never be anything stronger. It's remarkable. It'll never end. And we can continue on and on about examples of how God actually prefers the method of humility to do great things, right? He doesn't want you to be perfectly put together and have everything in order, and then he'll decide to use you. This whole idea of like, you know, like, like fix yourself, and then God will, God will finally use you, like that's just nonsense. That's not scriptural. And so I'm going to read some, some lines here that Jesus and other people in the scriptures have said, and you'll, just, you'll see it even clearer, that God's preferred way of bringing about life change and growth and remarkable work for the kingdom is through humble circumstances, right? Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. He also said, whoever humbles himself like a child, that this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He said that the last will be first and the first will be last. He said, whatever you do for the least of these, you have done for me, John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. The apostle Paul said, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. See, the point of this principle and parable, the point of the mustard seed is that God doesn't only delight in little beginnings. His kingdom thrives on it. His kingdom thrives on it. It is the method of growth in his kingdom, and it is also a method of immense grace. And so first, let me just make a note on this growth, right? If you take anybody in this room or anybody um, who has a faith story and you ask them, you know, when was the time that you grew the most in your faith? Nine times out of ten, you know what they're going to tell you? They're going to tell you about some hardship they went through. They're going to tell you about some trial that they had to endure. They're going to tell you about some loss they went through. Why? Because God does a remarkable thing in humble circumstances. For some reason, trial and suffering and hardship, these are pathways for spiritual growth. And he, he reveals himself in those moments. In James chapter 1, James gets it, and he writes in verses 2 through 4, a passage many of you knew, he, know. He says, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Consider it joy when you go through trials, because you know that at the end of this trial, you're going to be stronger, and Jesus is going to have accomplished something great through it. By the way, Jesus is the only one who comes with that guarantee. You can try all the other faiths out there. None of them have such a promise and a hope and a confidence in the place of suffering than Jesus offers. But not only is it his method for growth, it is his... It is a method just covered in his grace. And for that, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the words of the Apostle Paul in verses 26 through 31, where he says this, and please, it's a long passage, but please take note. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, and not many of noble birth. Just pause for a second. Is that not what the world just loves and craves and chases all the time? 
right? We want to be wise in our own eyes. We want everybody to listen to us. We want to have all the influence. We want to have the power, right? The influence and the talent and the ability. We want to have the noble birth, right? We want to have the last name and the reputation and all the benefits that come from that. Instead, verse 27 says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong, And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Makes you wonder when people show up to church and everybody's decked out, you know, their nice cars, nice facilities, nice clothes. Like, what image are we projecting to the church? Bunch of covered up nice people with nothing wrong? God actually chooses the weak and the foolish and the despised and the insignificant. Maybe we need to be a little bit more open and honest about the places in our life where we're in need, where we're trusting the Lord to to, to do something that we can't do. But listen, he's given us the grace of not needing to live self-boasting, of not needing to live fully reliant on our own ability and strength. I mean, what the world sees as lowly and foolish and weak and insignificant. These are the very things that God loves to do his best work in because only in these conditions do people boast in the Lord rather than themselves. Boasting in the Lord is life-giving. It is rewarding. It is good. I mean, we have the immense opportunity, every single thing in life, tough or, or easy, hard or bad or, or good, whatever it is, every single thing that we endure as Christians has a chance to roll up in praise and adoration to God. Everything we experience in this earth has, has the opportunity for heaven connection. That's something that the world doesn't have. The best they have is themselves. The best they have is the reward and, and the strength and, and the good things, the benefits that they can muster or conjure themselves. There's no roll-up. There's no heaven connection. And that's kind of a depressing thought. Boasting in the Lord is life-giving. Self-boasting is pretty dangerous. And honestly, living for your own glory is a terrible, unending oppression. It's just awful. All of the labor is on you. All of the responsibility is on you. All of the pressure is on you. And you're physically and emotionally and spiritually unable to overcome and escape every single weakness and humbling event. You can't do it. And if you try to live this way, you're going you're gonna to drown. This is my issue with Matilda, which how could you have an issue with a cute little 10-year-old girl, right? It's my issue with the movie, because her humble circumstance creates such a storm in her that she develops a telekinetic superpower, if you know the story, which seems kind of like out of left field, you know, in a a way. She develops a superpower that she's able to wield and use against her humble circumstances, her littleness, in which she becomes her own God and her own salvation. Yeah, she'll get the glory. She'll write her own destiny. She'll be praised by the world for for beating the odds. But listen, she's 10. 
just to keep over-spiritualizing this, this story. She's 10 years old. Is it really that awesome, even with a superpower, if you have to spend your entire life fighting and overcoming and earning and failing and fighting? Like, it's miserable. But we still choose this. This is still the route we choose. We much rather escape the lowly, weak, and insignificant aspects of our lives rather than embrace them, submit them to God, and let him do a deep, remarkable thing through it. We would love to develop telekinesis or some kind of superpower to help us be our own God and our own salvation. But that's not realistic, is it? So instead, we created the internet and smartphones and social media and now the metaverse, whatever the heck that is. All of it marketed as tools for productivity and connection, and yet every psychological and social study performed since the dawn of the digital age speaks to a radical increase in loneliness, depression, anxiety, and suicide. Why? Because escaping reality through self-boasting and playing God, they're not just meaningless things, they're soul killers. They will kill you, and you will drown under the weight of the world. And it's kind of mysterious to me just to tack on why so many believers, we see all this and we know it and we understand it, but we decide to ignore it and to treat it without any boundaries. Why? Well, I think it's because believers in Christ, we still prefer the escape. We're trapped in the cycle of living from escape to escape without any real escape. God has provided a better way. Through Christ, your life, as hard as it may seem at times, no longer needs to be something that you have to live to escape. It can become something full of life, full of meaning, full of purpose, even in your humble circumstances. But in order for this to be the case, there are really three essential things that have got to be in place for God to use your littleness for his greatness. And the first is this, it's humility. It's humility, and I'm not talking about just having humble circumstances in your life. I'm like, I'm talking about having humble circumstances in your life that you see and acknowledge. You're aware of your need, right? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, at the start of Jesus' greatest sermon ever, the greatest sermon ever preached, period. And Jesus says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What's the common denominator between the poor in spirit and the humble and those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst? People don't hunger for something that they don't need. People don't mourn over something that doesn't connect with them. You see, these people have awareness. They are keenly aware of their need and their disparity. And in that awareness and in that disparity, their eyes look up to heaven and they seek the Lord. These are people who are so aware. They see it in their own lives, they see it in the world, and they know that they are not strong enough to be their own answer. And yet the trend in modern Christianity just remains for people to be so good at hiding and escaping that they actually believe that they have everything in order. Social media feeds are just glittery, perfect, 
right? My kids did this and that. My spouse is wonderful. My, my job is perfect. I, I was listening to a pastor talk, and he said he was scrolling through his social media feed, and he forgot that it was his, and he's like, wow, he got jealous for his own social media feed. He's like, well, I want to be like this guy, but it was his, right? It's just that he only puts all the good things on it, just like most people, and we fool ourselves from the reality that, that life really isn't that great, It can be. There are awesome things about it. But I would bet every single person in here has a portion of your life somewhere that's a total mess. And if we were to talk and I was to say, you know, how is your life right now? And you were to really just say it's perfect. Everything's fine. There's not any issues. Then honestly, like you probably don't really care about people that much. Right? Because even if your life is perfect and it's not, but even if it were There's a lot of people right around you whose life still has a ton of mess in it. And I think our job as Christians is is probably to more often let other people's messes become our own. So that if people say, hey, how are things going for you? Well, for me, they're going pretty good. But for for my brother who's going through this thing, like, like, can we pray for him? Because this is really tough and I'm trying to minister to him and it's a challenge for me. Like, there's always going to be a need. There's always going to be a mess because that's the world that we live in and we can't hide from it. We can't hide in our phones. We can't hide in our defensiveness, in our chaotic schedules. I would say some people in here are probably so afraid of themselves. You have to have the TV on. You have to have the AirPods in. Your schedule has to be packed to the brim. Anything really to hide from real life and the real stirrings in your spirit and the real needs around you. This is not a healthy way to live. Now, there are others, and maybe some of you in this room, where awareness comes really easy for them. Like, their life has just sucked. Life has been really, really hard. Their parents didn't care about them. They never had any resources growing up. The conditions of their lives have just been harsh. Their their rate of suffering and experience of loss is so disproportionately high compared to others their age. And so for them, they see disparity pretty clearly. They see it in themselves, and they see it in the people around them. But listen, that's not enough. Humble circumstances are not enough. Because without faith, all your humble circumstance is going to leave you with is emotional and mental distress. Coupled with faith, there's nothing stronger. Humility with faith is a force to be reckoned with. And so let's speak about faith for a moment. Matthew chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, For truly I tell you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Again, he's speaking with hyperbole, right? Mountains aren't actually going to move, but what he's saying is that even through the smallest amount of faith, if you have it, God can do remarkable things in your life if you have faith. Now, if humility without faith just leads to inner distress, I would say faith without humility just leads to outward futility. Just going through the motions of religion, of, of faith, but not with any humility, in which case neither, neither is useful for the kingdom at all. Faith isn't that great by itself. That's what James says elsewhere in his, in his letter. What faith, faith without deeds is what? It's dead. It's pointless. Faith without humility is, is not really great in and of itself. But faith with humility, man, this pleases the heart of God. And that's what the Bible says about faith. Faith pleases the heart of God. 
Because it is a a constant readiness and consciousness of heart and mind to seek the Lord in all circumstances. It is a default spiritual position of trust in God's sovereign power and loving nature. This is faith. And when combined with humility, there's nothing that can stand against it. And by the way, when faith and humility are coupled together, what flows out of this are the branches of God's kingdom. The branches of God's kingdom. Branches so big that we see here in our passage that birds of the air will come and make their nest, finding rest in the shade. And this brings us to the third thing that we must need in our lives, that we must have in our lives for God to take our little things and turn it into his greatness. And we need people. We need people. See, God's greatness, just to define greatness, it's not about your personal success. It's not about your bank account. It's not, many, it's not about how many home runs you've hit. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about what school you go to. It's not about your athletic or, or intellectual ability at all. It's not about these things. Now, yes, none of them are sinful in and of themselves, and we must use all of them for the gospel. But they are not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is this, that we would follow Jesus and that we would help others do the same. The kingdom of God is about you, yes, but it's about everyone around you as well. It's about people. So look with me at verse 32. And when the mustard seed is sown, it comes up and grows taller than all of the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. And I love that detail. Now, if you're to look at the immediate context of what Jesus is saying immediately to his audience, this could go one of two ways. Um, I've heard scholars talk about both. The first is that these branches are, are kind of outlets for the Gentiles to come into God's kingdom, right? Which is great, because I'm a Gentile. I'm not Jewish, and you're a Gentile too, more than likely, right? So it's great that we have this opening into the kingdom of God, and that what God did among his people made a way for the world, that if they would believe and accept Christ, that they could nest in the branches of God's kingdom. It's awesome. I've also heard it explained this way, that the church has been such a mighty blessing to the entire world, that the world, the people of the world, the systems of the world, that those are the birds that come and nest in the branches of what God's people have done, of what the church has been for the world. I mean, where do you think hospitals came from? Where do you think universities came from? The oldest universities in in the States started most often with seminaries in them started by awesome Christian people. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all these places. These are all originally Christian organizations and places because God's church has been a wonderful blessing to the entire world. The world would be in shambles if God's people didn't live like God's people. It's a good understanding of this as well. I love that. Now, as I think about FBN and as I think about you and as I think about me, the question, this question comes to mind. Do people in your life, the people that you know, the people that you hang out with, do they find rest and shade and relief because of your love and pursuit of Jesus Christ? Is your walk with the Lord restful for anyone other than you? Is your pursuit of Jesus useful for anyone other than you? That's the question that comes to mind. And it's a hard one to answer, honestly, because we're talking about mustard seeds being planted. And as we know from all the other parables, we're not always going to know the outcome of these things. But it's a good question to ask. Uh, 
There are times, however, where God gives us a glimpse into what he has done through mustard seed deposits into people's lives. And I heard a story this week that is just unreal about how God has done this. Right? Um, a few years ago, many of you probably remember this, a few years ago, um, Grace Pittenger um, kind of felt this conviction from the Lord and her and her team, uh, they developed a ministry called Priceless. And this ministry sought to reach the women in strip clubs in, in our town. And so they assembled and they prayed and they met together and then they would go into the clubs in town. And they would go bringing gifts, offering prayer, offering love to these women right in the clubs. Now, priceless hasn't been, that was just a season for us. But for God, it wasn't, obviously, because just this week, years after this, the team received a text from one of the dancers that they had met during that time. This woman since then has gotten married. She has kids. She has a family. She's no longer a dancer. And she's a follower of Jesus. And she's leading, she's leading her household to do the same. probably seemed insignificant to most people. The effort was hard. I know for the Priceless team, it was like grueling to, to, to do this, um, to follow the Lord's lead in this. The timeline was probably longer than anybody would have expected. The context was dark and tough and grimy and uncomfortable, and yet God used all of the littleness of this story to change this woman and her entire family. And my first thoughts from the perspective that is gained from this is like, who cares if your kid hit another home run? Who cares if your wife made you breakfast this morning? You have to post it to the world. I know this isn't the right attitude necessarily, but listen, the things that we get so celebratory over, the things that we get so excited about, it does not pale in comparison to what God wants to do in the hearts of people in little and humble places. On top of that, we're going to celebrate baptism today in our third service, which is awesome. This young family, sweet little family of little kids, uh, Pacey and Matthew Price. Just another beautiful example of what God is doing. Just this remarkable thing about small, little, humble, mustard seed-sized experiences and faith that have brought them to wanting to, to submit their entire household to the Lord. We're going to celebrate that at the end of our third service. We're going to try to record it um, so that we can just share it with you next week. You're welcome to stay another couple hours if you want to watch it. But listen, God is at work. Even if you don't see it, even if you don't understand it, he's at work. Even if it's different than your timeline, he's at work. And so your little unseen places of obedience, don't discount the fact that God is probably using these for remarkable things. And it's awesome when we get to hear about it. But even when we don't, we trust that he's using it, and we continue, and we remain faithful, and we remain. And so I want to at least have a time for us today for you to think about these things, for you to reflect on your devotions. Where's your humility at? Do you live just escaping and hiding, or are you aware? Where's your faith do you believe that your little and unseen and maybe even meaningless places of, of 
obedience, at least in your own mind and perspective, that they're actually completely worth it because God loves using those things for, for, his, for the greatness of his kingdom. And then, of course, ask the question, does your life, or at least do you have the things in your life that might provide spiritual refuge and rest for others because of how the kingdom of God is at work in your life? So we're going to go into a time of reflection. I want you to just spend some time in prayer, just a few minutes, just spend some time in prayer, and then we'll close in prayer together after this time. Well, we're going to wrap up our time together, and I do pray that this is not the last time that you reflect on this parable, that you reflect on 
how God might want to grow your faith and humility through uh, trusting him with very little things so that he might do big things. So I pray that this will carry into your, your families, your household conversations, your small groups. Please uh, don't let these things just stop with today. Uh, but we are excited to celebrate about baptism. Uh, we are excited about what God is doing here. And man, we got a ministry filled with lots of little places that we're trusting God to use for big reasons. Um, and we know he is. So however that applies to your life as well, trust him. Trust him, believe in him, and open the doors of your home. Let the branches of your home extend into the lives of other people so they might rest in the kingdom of God. Um, all that said, as you go out um, next to the bulletins, we also want to just encourage you to invite people to our Easter services. Um, not because we're numbers driven, but people need the Lord, and we're going to share the Lord on that day. So um, um, if you want to grab some of those invite cards, we've got plenty of them. Take as many as you want. If we run out of these black tables, there's some more out in this, in this connect room on the shelf. Um, go and just invite people. Invite people to our Easter services, to Good Friday, um, um, to Easter Sunday. And we're excited about that, and it's only in like a few weeks. It's just crazy to me, right? It's really not that far away. And so uh, keep that in your back pocket and keep it in your wallet. Pass it out uh, to people who you might want to invite to share that experience with you. We'd love to have them. And listen, we're glad that you've been here today. If you're a guest here with us today, uh, we'd love to just get to know you. Um, there's guest cards around um, that you could uh, that you could pick up and fill out uh, if you'd like, and uh, just put it in the Connect desk back here. Just let us know that you are here. We'd love to touch base with you um, and just say hey and introduce ourselves and then proceed at a comfortable rate for you. We're not going to bombard you with emails and stuff, uh, but we would like the chance to get to know you. Uh, listen, all that said, we love you guys. Go uh, with Christ today. You are dismissed. Thanks. <laughs>